For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. What's up, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls around the world? I would like to welcome you back to the Real Talk with Zuby podcast. Now, on today's episode, we have got on a very special guest, and this is Magda Osman. Welcome to the show. Hello, Zuby. How are you doing, Magda? I'm doing very good. <laughs> awesome. Have you done a lot of podcasts before, or is this new? Yeah, I've done a few. <laughs> Fantastic. So I've done a brief intro right there, but for people who are not familiar with who you are and what you do, please tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, well, as I'm a psychologist by trade, um, and the areas that I'm interested in sort of fairly wide ranging. So primarily interested in decision making, so how we make decisions in lots of different contexts and what the basic mechanisms are. Um, I'm also interested in the unconscious and what claims are made and substantiated by the evidence. Um, I'm also interested in um, agency and control, like those kinds of things. And uh, also I'm interested where psychologists are invited to make recommendations about interventions that in theory are supposed to help people make better decisions and behave better um, and behave in ways that also serve the public good. And mm. it, it, I suppose one thing that might help explain all of my approaches to these different areas is that I'm fairly uh, critical. Uh, I take a sort of fairly critical eye to things. So I don't tend to quickly assume that just because a claim is made, yeah, you know, it's uh, you know, it's valid until yeah, it's sufficiently scrutinised. So you follow the scientific method. That's not allowed anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, it depends what circle. Um, but yeah, no. Generally, I I try to be fairly stringent in the work that I do, even mm. if maybe others aren't. <laughs> that, that, I'm I'm curious about the. Um the behavioral aspects that you mentioned there. So can you give us uh, some examples of what you mean by that? Uh, you mean the kinds of interventions mm. that, um, so often these are referred to as nudges and um, yeah, they, they, they're used by all manner of industries, both the public and private sector organizations like uh, trying to use them. Um, and before I explain um, what some of them are, it's worth knowing that um, their popularity is that if it's sometimes it's hard to persuade people to do things if you use um, hard measures like taxes and bans and that kind of thing. 
So it, there's the behavioural measures are soft, known as soft interventions. So the idea is you kind of, you know, you gently persuade people into behaving in a particular way that might be good for them. So, for instance, that could be um, putting unpleasant um, images on cigarette packages or um, changing the order in which food is presented in a canteen so all of the healthy stuff is presented first. And the idea is that that persuades you to look at things you wouldn't normally sort of think about buying and you overcommit to buying the healthy stuff or picking that first. And when you go to pay for it, when you later come across the kind of nice smelling, uh, slightly unhealthy foods, uh, you've already committed to the salad. So the idea is that you know, th these kind of simple techniques are used to kind of nudge you in a way that you know, makes you do better things for yourself. Ah, okay. And what's your general view on that? My assumption would be that this is affecting effective to some very wide range of varying degrees depending on what the behavior you're trying to change is and also what the nudge sort of tactic is would that be accurate to say yeah i mean yeah. the although i'm i'm a, i'll i'll return the question back mm -hmm. um because i'm curious what makes you think the yeah the, the yeah you you're indicating some skepticism there about the degree of efficacy yeah um and yeah the i mean in my reading of the literature so the, the these interventions are used everywhere so they're used to try to persuade you to um eat sustainably uh, so in the in the context of you know sustainable consumption in um pro-environmental behaviors and things like that organ donation just everywhere mm. and if you go context by context or where they're used then on the whole they i would say the jury's out that they are they are at all effective right so okay. the if you look across all of the studies of which there are enormous amounts um they don't seem to work reliably um, and possibly for the reasons that you know you intuit, which is that you know people are going to vary in their interests and their own value systems, which are going to interact with the intervention. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, in some cases, the work we did most recently was looking at the fact that some of these interventions backfire, so mm -hmm. that you know that, so they make things worse <laughs> than if they hadn't been introduced <laughs> in the first place. Okay. Yeah. What's, so, a, what's an example of that? Uh, so there was um, this was done in the States on a university campus. And uh, the idea was to try to encourage people to well, there's a number of things. One was um, to reduce the uh, consumption of like sugary drinks in drinks dispensers. So they changed the ratio of unhealthy to healthy drinks. Mm. And then so that was the first stage. And then the second stage was that they um, they retrofitted the drinks fountains on campus. So the idea is that you, you buy your healthy drink, you keep the bottle, uh, you don't litter so much, and then you just refill it with the water that's uh, on campus. So the 
the water fountains were made easier for that to happen. Mm-hmm. So the idea is encourage people to drink more water, encourage people to drink healthily and not litter. And on virtually all of those counts, there was more littering. <laughs> <laughs> people bought more unhealthy things than healthy things compared to the to start with mm. and they didn't bother using the drinks fountain so it's a really expensive epic fail that's interesting that does surprise me that does surprise me why do you think why do you think that is uh well the well there's a couple of things so one is the um the 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 they didn't actually do their homework well enough so one thing was that in the local area there were issues around the water purity. So now that had been um, already inspected and um, uh, publicized in the local newspapers. So people were already skeptical about the water quality. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing is, so that's one. And then the, yeah, the other is that, um, well, you're drinking your water. <laughs> On Always. Q- um is that if you the the perverse effect that you can find is that if you change the ratio so um of healthy to unhealthy and you make the unhealthy thing rarer it can be seen to be that much more attractive Mm. so that's why it's where it backfires oh well the thing that you're telling me not to drink i want to drink a bit more (laughs) Because it actually seemed to be that much more attractive to me. So there's all of these things that, in theory, you could have uh, mapped out in advance before running the trials, and you, and you could have kind of thought through that. Then mm. it would have likely prevented some of these things from happening. That's really interesting. That's interesting because I'm, I'm always interested by things where the response or the result is either the opposite of what was intended or the opposite of what even a rational person with common sense would have expected. Um, so that that's interesting. Um, but what, so yeah, the question back then, so what, yeah. what made you, well, and then uh, a question on, well, we can talk around irration, what's mm. rational because that's kind of interest of interest. Yeah. So, okay. I'll, I'll, so your, your question is why did I think that that yeah, would have exactly. probably worked? Yeah. Well, okay. Number one, the, the whole water issue in that unique area. I think that's quite a unique um, factor that obviously yeah. I wasn't, I wasn't considering. I'm just assuming, okay, the water is, is fine. If the water yeah. ha- itself has some issues or concerns, then I think that's a, quite a big spanner in the works, of course. Um, but assuming, okay, let's say this was run in a place where that water issue doesn't exist. I also think about my own behavior. So I don't think changing the ratio, I'm not surprised that changing the ratio didn't really affect anything. I'm not surprised by that one. I am surprised that, but again, maybe this comes back to the water point. I would have thought that if you put more water fountains or make it easier for people to refill water bottles, for example, then you'd get less littering, less wastage, and you'd get people actually drinking more water. I also consider my own behavior. So I always use those machines that refill water bottles. If I see one in a gym or in an airport or whatever it is, I'm the, I am use them all the time, especially in an airport where they're charging 3 or $4 <laughs> for, for a bottle of water. If I've yeah. already got a bottle, 
then I'm gonna I'm gonna use the water. And I guess as a byproduct of that, I'm throwing away I'm throwing away less bottles because I'm I'm reusing them. So it would be interesting to see that experiment somewhere where there isn't an issue with the water itself. I wonder if at least that thing that I would have predicted would have had the correct result would have occurred. The ratio thing I'm not surprised by at all. Um but yeah, the the people not drinking as much water one, that one is a bit of a spanner in the works. But the I mean to to that point, hmm. um and this applies kind of consistently throughout, which is that um you know what these if you're if you're only introducing interventions which in effect are tailor made to people's different interests and motives hmm. and uh and their value systems then um then it's almost inevitable that things aren't going to work out because um th- you know these things interact you can't just assume that everybody is you know um is going to operate in the same way so a one size fits all can't work in this, oh, yeah. in this. so that's so that, and that sort of applies consistently throughout these different types of interventions that are used mm. because you know, if you're just assuming everybody thinks the same way oh yeah and it's motivated in the same way then it's almost inevitable it's going to break down so yeah, yeah. I, I wouldn't I, w- I wouldn't personally assume that and that, that's not my assumption here to be clear I would have assumed, though, that there is a percentage of people who are, okay, like me in that, you know, some people don't even drink water. So like some people, some people, <laughs> some people, you're, you're, you know, it's going to be very hard to, to change their behavior at all with something like that. But I would have thought, I don't know, throw a number on it, 20, 25% of people, well, 30, I don't know what the number is, but there'll be a percent who are like, oh, okay, the issue was that there was not easy access to free water. And so if you make that available, then some percentage of people, it might not be as high as you want it to be. It's not going to be everybody, but some people are going to, are going to take advantage of that and, and use it. So that, that's, that would have been my assumption. Yeah. But I mean, even to that point, um, yeah, what effects you might expect to find Mm. is then important. So this is where kind of statistical analyses really matter because mm. you think, well, is what is a meaningful impact? <laughs> like, because if you're changing the needle by two or three percent, mm. depending on how big the population is that you're testing, if, yeah, yeah, you, you it'll look like there's a difference, but it's just it's it's minuscule. It's just it'll exaggerate because you know if you're running it across the entire population, you think, oh yeah, that's that's pretty good. You know, we change things by two or five percent, mm-hmm. but you think, well, is that does that count as a significant change in people's behaviour? So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is where all of these other kind of uh, important methodological, statistical factors matter. Yeah. Okay, so I'm I'm curious. So in this example, say that you were trying to reduce the amount of junk drinks, drunk, <laughs> and you were trying to increase the amount of water that people drink, and you were trying to reduce the litter, what would have been more effective, for example, in this situation, without using, of course, a any type of coercion, let's say. Well, I mean, but the, yeah, again, <laughs> well, right. Well, so the, here's the, I mean, the, then this is another interesting thing, which is, you know, it depends whether if you added a tax, so you add a, ta- a sugar tax, let's say, 
then and you combine a number of other things let's say you, you add labels somewhere or you know, you introduce a campaign then in combination you might find that there are some you know reasonable effects but the let's say is adding a sugar tax which isn't in itself considered a nudge but is something that actually is likely to in, either disincent what's well, likely to disincentivize people mm-hmm. is that coercive because you know we accept that taxes are going to be included on all manner of things i think all, we, i think taxation is coercive period but okay. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're talking to a pretty libertarian person here so that, that's a whole that's a whole different topic <laughs> oh, <right. laughs> um so in any of the work that i've done looking at these kinds of things to answer your question not in specifically this context but in all manner of other contexts especially in ones where it's you know, actually quite emotionally laden. So, for instance, you know, trying to encourage people to go on an organ donation register to donate their organs. You know, that's a you know, pretty emotionally laden and tricky area. Mm-hmm. Um, so there in many other places, the, you know, the you know, simple behavioral change interventions like the ones I've described just don't cut it they're just you know so the the expectation that i have of any of these things you know either on their own or in combination is that they really aren't going to work that that well or at least not reliably because this is the other thing right so say you manage to persuade people to uh through whatever means you know soft behavioral interventions you encourage people to buy you know slightly healthier drinks but what people do also is because it's context dependent is that they 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 have the what's known as compensatory behaviors so that is you, you say well okay i had something healthy at this point but <laughs> that's going to buy me license to actually then go and have something unhealthy later and we do mm-hmm. that with food so mm-hmm. you can encourage people to eat healthily in one context and they completely underwrite that virtuous behavior if you see it as virtuous mm-hmm. in another context. So these things, you know, the, the, just shows just how the complexity of how we navigate our choices means that we don't generalize these these kind of, you know, it's very hard to create a habit, which is effectively the gold stand or the you know the ultimate goal in these things which you change behavior and then you get it reliably to stay that way and across lots of different contexts and mm-hmm. it just doesn't happen <laughs> or at least not in my reading of the literature anyway yeah so how do human beings make decisions i know that's a very big open complicated question but in your research as a psychologist how would you describe the typical decision making process uh well um so value systems matter right mm-hmm. so in any uh choice context so in any situation where you're faced with different options yeah there's lots of you know background stuff that's going to kick the process uh to operate so you're going to have to show a preference so this is where your value systems and your kind of prior experiences are going to help you decide which of the options to kind of assign values to. So you go, okay, well, of the three options available, 
I have a stronger preference for A over B or C. Um, because in the past, I've always picked A or I like, you know, whatever that is. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have a stronger preference for it. So I assign a greater value to it. So then if I'm being rational, and there are either very minimal constraints on what's considered rational. So let's say in this case, just being rational is that you've assigned the values. A is of higher value to you than B and C. Mm-hmm. And you pick A. That's it. Yeah, that's that's you demonstrating some consistency between what you've shown a preference for and your choice. And that's, yeah, at the heart of decision making, that's effectively that. I mean, you can add layers of complexity to that because Mm -hmm. you you look at the way people might be inconsistent and what explains their inconsistencies and so on. But generally, that's the basic process. Mm -hmm. What are some of the biggest misconceptions around decision making or what people believe that's just Um, not necessarily correct? Yeah. So that's... well, that's <laughs> well. Let, well, let's take a few. So, okay. um, so one is, um, yeah, what counts as rational, right? So, the the outcome, so the the final choice, in and of itself, isn't irrational, right? So, if people, so let's say you decide to do something you so i give you a, you know a, di- a decision uh setup which is a dilemma and you pick a whatever that is um and uh, i just don't like that choice well, i can't just say because i don't like what you've chosen you're irrational because as long as i know what your value system is and why you've shown a preference for it and the way that you've assigned the preferences um, are consistent. So you pick the one with the highest value. That's rational. Mm-hmm. So so the, that can start very quickly falling apart if people just make value judgments on the basis of something someone else has done that they don't like. And then they say that's irrational. Either well, no, that's not. It's the process by which you arrive at a, a decision that's rational, not the outcome necessarily. Mm-hmm. So, um, and there's lots of ways that kind of plays out because you know people casually throw around the term, "Oh, that's irrational." People are being inherently irrational. Either, yes. Well, so the you know one needs to be very precise about what one means here. So. Mm-hmm. Let's say, you know, what could count as irrational is that I've just made a decision, regardless of what you're, you know, you say, here's the option. I, I've, I'm not going to engage in the information that, that allows me to formally make the decision and go through mm. the steps I've just described. I'm going to make it anyway. I, I don't care. I've already prejudged what thing I'm going to do. And then I justify my decision after the fact mm-hmm. so that counts as irrational does that make does that make sense yeah it does and i'm curious because my understanding is that a lot of decisions fall into that category that people actually tend to make decisions more with their heart and their emotion and then rationalize the fact afterwards is that correct to say 
because uh, that that seems to be how a lot of decisions are formed. Sometimes it's hard to know if you're going. I think even as an individual, I think we all have this sometimes where you yourself are not totally sure if you're operating brain first followed by heart or heart first followed by brain. And then you're using your brain to rationalize what you are already feeling towards. Like I just have a feeling towards this thing. And then you quickly rationalize it versus did you really think about it first and then make that decision? I think that can be, it can be very blurry and maybe they happen at the same time sometimes. Well, the, I mean, I think that, so that taps into a couple of other misconceptions, which is okay. that, um, the, well, at least how I study decision-making, I don't make it because it's a, it's a very easy distinction to make to just say that we either, we either go with our gut uh, um, or our emotions, whatever that is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then th- there are other times where we kind of, you know, deliberate and figure out what we want to do. Well, actually, the, the those two things aren't separated. Okay. So when you're making a decision, you're using a number of different signals. Um, like let's say, you know, let's not make it necessarily abstract. You think, well, you, <laughs> you, you've got a menu where you're going to figure out, um, you know, something to eat. Well, you know, you might make a very quick decision. You think, well, I'm just going to stick with the thing that I've already picked before because I know the restaurant. I know the, so I'm not interested in exploring any of the other options. Or you go, well, I have a strong preference for this. That's the the one that I like because all of the signals are kind of, you know, you're you're using lots of signals, either Mm. the way you've read the menu or something just compels you because, you know, there are emotionally kind of happy signals kind of sent. So it's not like it's either or. Yeah, you're using a number of things like physiological cues as well as the details in the – so it's not that – it just – it it feels intuitively in our folk beliefs about these things Mm -hmm. that these things are separate, but then Mm -hmm. they're not, Um, which also then enters into the territory of – um biases okay because the you know the, the there's a there's a there's a deferment that the biases are ones which are kind of highly emotionally laden and unconscious and you know even that i would say is contested right so it's very hard experimentally to demonstrate that something is happening unconsciously like that it's just you know we're, we're still trying to find the right techniques to to show that Mm -hmm. so then it becomes even harder to actually make very strong claims that the biases that you know we show are ones that are are completely driven unconsciously so that's another thing i would say you know is what we we tend to believe or at least is what's communicated in the populace, but not necessarily something that, you know, scientifically I would bet on. Mm -hmm. So this goes into the realm of things like, I guess the most obvious example is so-called unconscious bias training, (laughs) which is something I've never done, but um, I have heard about. And uh, I believe even the people who created some of the tests sort of suggest that it's not supposed to be used in the way that certain people are using it. But I know it's a thing in... I've been self-employed for ten years, so I, I don't know. Uh, I don't know what's going on in all the the corporate worlds and the the universities and everything. I just hear stuff, 
But um, I know that unconscious bias training over the past few years has become a bit of a hot topic. So I can tell by your response that you are not a fan. So what are, <laughs> what are your what are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, I'm not a fan anyway because um, yeah, the uh, if you if you're if you're invited to go onto these training courses, then the assumption is that there's something wrong with you. So, <laughs> um, so you, so then inevitably, you know, the it's you. They're on the back foot, right? Mm. So, you, well, you've already sent the signal. That this isn't going to be. <laughs> yeah, this. I'm doing something wrong, um, and I mean, and also you get some kind of really interesting um, kind of logical problems here. So. Uh, which we, I don't know whether you want to talk about those, but so the one is that um, you are told, yeah, you can do this test, which is the um, Im implicit attitude or association test, whatever the, the you know, varying labels are. And this is supposed to be a diagnostic tool, although, it, the, yeah, they caveat that. So, no, it's not really a di diagnostic tool, except for it is, because it's supposed to show that, yeah, you aren't aware that there's some bias, that, you, you, that yeah, you're inherently misogynistic or whatever it is that you're know, supposed to be. Yeah. Um, and uh, there are a number of problems with that. One being that there's no kind of test retest reliability. So if you do the test on someone and you do it again, you'd assume that if these profound unconscious biases exist, then uh, you should respond in the same way. But you don't. Right? So, it's, uh, that's, so there's unreliability there. Um, and then if you will, then there's also a problem, which is that, well, if it's unconscious, how are you supposed to target it? Because how do you know to know? So, uh, so there's these kind of, you know, all of these other problems. And then another problem, which is, you know, the, in terms of the logic of it, which is, let's say, yeah, there's kind of two interesting concepts here. One is um, uh, responsibility and blame. And they're actually, they're conceptually different. So one is, well, uh, so here's here's a kind of you know basic example. So I go out with my friends and I start kicking a ball, and I kick the ball close to the net. In fact, it ricochets off the goalpost and uh, smashes a window. Mm. Um, so that's so ultimately I'm responsible because if I hadn't have kicked the ball, then ultimately the ball wouldn't have smashed the window mm -hmm. so i'm responsible but if i if i if you're going to blame me then you'd have to know what my intention is so mm -hmm. if my intention is yeah i don't like the neighbor so i want to kick the ball so i can you know ruin their day by having to you know um change the you know, um the window and replace it then that's that you know there's deliberate kind of malicious intent then in which case mm -hmm. You know, that's blame. Mm. So then you enter into kind of furry, you know, fuzzy territory when even if we assume that there were was unconscious bias, like, well, what what can you do with that? Like, so you, you, you how can you 
how can you hold someone you might you, you might be able to say well they've done this test so that shows that they you know they're they're responsible for their biases but they're but they're but their biases are unconscious so they're not consciously responsible for them they're unconsciously responsible for them okay but you can't blame them because you think well no i can blame them but because there is malicious intent you think well but the malicious intent is also at an unconscious level so mm-hmm. how are you supposed to hold someone responsible then if or, or or blame them if all of this is happening at an unconscious level aside from the fact that the evidence suggests that you know, none of these tests actually reliably um you know demonstrate that there is this kind of unconscious bias so mm-hmm. or, or, or along the lines of these kind of protected values that you know people are supposed to be trained out of having biases for um aside from the fact that it's a it's an unregulated industry so if you wanted to make more money yeah you could decide to come up with some yeah <laughs> particular trading me- method yourself yeah. Well, maybe not. Yeah, my, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm gonna make a test. That, I'm gonna make a test that shows everybody's racist. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Which you could do. Yeah, yeah. You, you could convince enough people. Yeah, because the yeah the level of scrutiny. I think. Well, here's the other thing, which is that yeah, I've been making these noises for some time. Um, about you know, how ridiculous all of this is like it's there's just insanity on so many levels um but even if i you think even without kind of the the logical issues around it you know if you just looked at the evidence the evidence doesn't provide enough to you know to do much with it um so uh what's interesting is that you know that i there wasn't a, a space for me to say that easily um because the narrative didn't go in that direction right so you know we're not interested in people going around saying you know that yeah they, they they're skeptical about all of this stuff or this kind of lack of evidence for it because yeah, we don't want to hear that so that, that it is very difficult to actually say well the, well the tide is somewhat turning now but for for a long period, it was just no, shut up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, don't, don't go around saying these kinds of things. We don't want to hear it. Um, yeah, it, it's a it's a little bit Orwellian as well. I mean, this unconscious bias. It's it's very much like thought crime. You know, it's yeah. you are maybe thinking something that you don't even know that you're thinking, and we need to uh, we need to check that or manipulate it or hold you responsible for something that you're it's it's almost like i mean if you're talking about unconscious it's like trying to hold someone accountable or blame them say for something that they dreamed right you're asleep and you're dreaming and it's unconscious and someone is monitoring your dream and something maybe you do something criminal in your dream and then they want to somehow hold you to account for that or manipulate you or make you do some tests so that you won't have these unconscious thoughts. It, it's very weird when it comes to a lot of these ideas. I think sometimes people forget, people forget to ask why, 
Mm. Right. Like I, I think this happens a lot in in mm. our modern world is mm. people spend a lot of time trying to fix problems that don't exist. Right. They're not actually problems. Like maybe it's some type of inequality of outcome or it's some this or it's that. And it's it's like, OK, is there is there a real problem we're trying to fix here or yeah. is it just, you know, so so if someone even if someone someone does have unconscious biases, say, but it's like, OK, well, unless unless their behavior is I don't like the word problematic because it's been messed up by so many people, but if their behavior is problematic, right? If someone is commit committing crimes or is actively discriminating against people or hurting people or whatever, it, like, okay, like that's an action. So you can do something about an action. If someone just has a, a thought or a bias or an idea, even if it's a bad idea, we all have bad ideas, right? We, we all have bad ideas. We all have emotions. We all have things that we think that, oh, maybe I wasn't very proud of that thought or whatever. But if you don't act on it and do something bad, then it's it's in your head, right? Yeah. So yes. there's, there's a big difference between thoughts and actions. And once you get trying to trying to massively control people's thoughts, then I think we're in very weird territory. Yes. I mean, well, although, you know, it's even more perverse because, you know, it's the, the you know, you take the Or- Orwellian kind of, you know, uh, <laughs> he, this, you know, stance, mm-hmm. but it was even worse because it's not even thought, it's not conscious thought. No. It's not <laughs> conscious thought. Mean, what is that? Yeah. Um, and the other thing is that, you know, kind of returning to evidence and, yeah, there's plenty out there, which actually shows that, you know, the if he if he used the test, whatever, you know, let's say there's kind of the off the shelf tests that people use to try to detect the bias, it's not predictive at all, or you know, or very unreliably predictive of any behaviors. Mm. In fact, what is predictive of behaviors is the introduction of either the unconscious bias training or equality and diversity training, because that leads to backfiring for, mm. for the reason I said to start with. If you bring people in, if you didn't bring people in and then they, the automatic assumption is that there's something wrong, then you pit people against each other. So you think, all oh, right, okay, well, I'm going to be even more resentful, one, of being on this training course, mm. but also of the target you know, populace in the organization that you think I've got a problem with. Because, you know, unless you evidence that, unless you evidence it to start with, as you say, you're you're in effect creating problems that weren't even there. Mm. And you you can do that really easily. Yeah. And I was going to say, I think as well, look, as human beings, nobody likes to be accused of things that they're not guilty of or things that they haven't done. That That's a natural human thing. If someone comes up to you and, you know, accuses you of something that you're not or calls you something that you know that's bad, that you're not, nobody likes that. Nobody likes that. No one wants to be called a racist or a misogynist or a sexist or homo- like whatever it is. No one wants to be called any label that's negative when you're not that thing, right? It makes people naturally defensive. And as you've already said, it it can lead to that reactionary thing where they then feel some type of hostility or resentment, certainly against the people who are accusing them of that. Um, But then also if, you know, if it's coming from like a, a, a group or a a demographic of sorts, then yeah, that can increase a feeling of resentment because they're like, no, I'm not, 
I'm not that thing that you're you're saying I am and they're like yes you are yes you are and yeah it's it's not um it's not it's firstly it's not it's not very nice it's not very kind it's not very civil um but I also think yeah it's just it's just counterproductive assuming that you are actually trying to fix a problem but coming back around I don't think sometimes we're trying to fix problems that aren't that aren't there well there's a there's a yeah there's another right so I'm not denying in anything that I've said, that there aren't biases, yeah. That we, I don't think any. Yeah. I don't think anyone in the world. <laughs> I don't think you. I don't think you need that caveat because well, everyone in the world knows that 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 these things exist. But yeah, but they. It's but not they a, yeah, but not every. Yeah, the. Um, I mean, but the, but then yeah, not everybody shows humility that they accept that they have them, okay. or the um, yeah, or these kind of other ideas that are out there, which is you can eliminate them which is completely mm. inane, right? That, you know, that if you don't understand the way our cognition works, then it's, you know, it's, it's inane to think that you can remove them or eliminate them. So that's what, what, do you, what do you mean by that? Uh, so if you say, well, I, you know, we're going to eliminate all biases, then... Oh, uh, yeah, I think all. I mean, I think, I think over the course of time, sort of throughout a society and a culture, you can create an environment where types of biases are reduced in terms of like, I don't think there's any human virtue or flaw that you can get to zero unless you're just going to eliminate humanity, right? Yeah. People, people are people, right? You're not, you're not going to get anything to zero, right? You're never going to get crime levels to zero. Like it would be great yeah. if you could get violent crime levels to zero. That would be wonderful, but it's a pipe dream. Right, but yeah. you you can create an atmosphere and a society and a culture and a morality where it's greatly reduced in this place compared to another place or even over a time, but yeah, getting anything to zero, getting anything to perfect, if you're talking about human beings, I think if you if you even try, you normally uh, end up with a very bad situation. Yeah, yeah, you, or, yeah. yeah, or else you just fail miserably. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> either it doesn't work or it massively backfires. Yeah. The, I mean, but the other, so yeah, the the other thing that I was going to say is that because, yeah, no one's going to deny that there, there aren't biases. I certainly am not saying that. But the, but the other, and that there are, let's say, you know, discriminatory behaviours that are out there. Although, you know, again, one has to be careful how one evidences that. So you can't just assume that it's the case unless you've got good evidence to show and everybody you know, reaches a consensus on what the quality of the evidence is to show that that's the case. So, you know, let's say in the backdrop, there are all of these things happening. But the thing is that if you, if your starting point is, you know, if I encounter people of different kinds to me, (laughs) um, and they're going to be hostile to me because I'm different to them, then you're almost inevitably going to receive hostility back, mm-hmm. right? So there's the, that's the perverse aspect of it because you're automatically going to behave in a way that's quite guarded and prickly mm-hmm. and quite weird. So th- then the natural response of someone that's receiving that is, well, why are they being guarded and weird? Like there's no reason for me to actually be pleasant to this person because they're being odd. Right, so you raise the probability of receiving hostility if you assume if your kind of worldview is one where 
if I encounter loads of people that are different, they're going to be automatically hostile to me, right? So, you know, whether they were or not going to be like that, you've increased the chances of that happening, given your perspective. So, you know, know, it's kind of almost perversely reinforcing if you go down that, you know, or you Mm. take that kind of perspective. Absolutely. Changing topics a little, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about a, a word which has been Flying out around, fl- flying around a lot over the last couple of years, and this is the word misinformation, which is a uh, it, it, boy. It's I, I think it's a giving giving the devil his due. I think most people have good intentions with what they're trying to do around this, but I think this is another situation where, in trying to solve a problem you're potentially creating a bigger and more dangerous one, especially when it comes to social media, YouTube and Twitter and Facebook and even public conversations where people are calling, you know, the word misinformation is being thrown around a lot. So what are your, what are your general thoughts on that? (laughs) Well, I'm going to sound like a bit of a broken record here. Okay. Um, The, yeah, I'm highly skeptical of almost all of it, um, including the kind of work that some of my colleagues do around this. Because, um, yeah, for a start, if you looked, which is what we've currently been doing. So if you if you look by different disciplines, right, so you go into you know, law or computer science or history or philosophy and so on, and you try to sort of kind of map out what, their general take is from their lit from that literature as to well what is misinformation how old or new is this a problem assuming you can say specify what precisely is the problem mm-hmm. um yeah and how so how big that problem is so they the 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 disciplines don't agree right so there's no consensus that you know in one in what it means or also, you know, how some will say that well, this is you know, this has been the, the case since the beginning of time, right? Mm-hmm. Since the since our ability to communicate with each other, we're going to communicate things that aren't necessarily um, true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but really, well, well, what's what? Yeah, you know, what degrees of latitude are we giving around what's true, right? Say, so, yeah, you know, is it something that's, that's slightly distorted or something that's blatantly false? Mm-hmm. So there's that, or rumor, and you know, all those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So there's, so there's that. So there's, there's no coherent agreement on what is considered misinformation, and that by discipline, and there's no, and there's no agreement because some of them will say, well, this is an old problem. It's not, yeah, there's nothing unique about our time. Um, that makes it, you know, something as alarming as everybody's making out. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, this is, so there's that. The other thing is that, and it kind of links to what we were talking about around, um, yeah, unconscious bias and that kind of thing, which is that um, unless you can demonstrate that there is a direct connection between a piece of information that is um, communicated and spread, and behavior then 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 what yeah then what are you what are you worried about right mm-hmm. so 
I can come across or say, well, kind of, you can break this down, right? So I either have a particular belief and I encounter some misinformation, let's say for the purposes of the discussion, misinformation is something that's other than the ground truth, right? the consensus ground truth. Are we saying consensus or are we saying truth? Because those are different things as well. Well, because the, the yeah, the thing is that we yeah, what facts and claims we can make mm-hmm. are going to yeah change over time because the the quality of the evidence means that yeah we have to learn based on what we understand at the time. Mm-hmm. So you know, it's so in that sense, yeah, given the methods or whatever it is that we're using to actually find the ground truth. I mean, some things, yeah, they're universals, let's say, but some, yeah, scientific claims are going mm-hmm. to adapt over time because you start learning more stuff, right? Yep. So you, and you, and that's this part of the scientific method as well, right? So you have to kind of, you know, shift according yeah. to the, you know, the evidence that's accumulated, mm-hmm. right? So, yeah, all of the caveats and qualifications yeah, out yeah. of the way. Uh, although it is useful to say all of these things because people are quite <laughs> sloppy about, you know, what they throw <laughs> around like, in these, these terms. So let's say I had a prior belief. Um, so I encounter this misinformation that actually reinforces the false belief that I have. Right. So then what, yeah, what, what, yeah. So what's the important order here? You know, I encountered something that's consistent with what I thought. And that's the thing that's then going to motivate me to behave in a particular way. Or I had no belief at all. And I somehow encountered this bit of information that radically changed my belief system that then made me go out and behave in a particular way. Right. So that these things are non-trivial because, you know, the, the onus of responsibility is on evidence to show that the information is the thing that is driving a change in behavior or harmful behavior, either to the self or to um to the to people around you and that there doesn't seem to be well for the reason that you can hold a false belief right so people yeah you know, people might know that smoking's bad for them mm-hmm. in fact i'd be surprised that a lot of people didn't know that <laughs> um but but some people smoke right mm-hmm. so you can hold a belief there's an actually accurate one mm-hmm. and still do something that's you know harmful to yourself mm-hmm. right and the, the opposite applies right so then if you so that's where it matters where well what's the inf- so there's not a direct correspondence between what you believe and how you behave mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so then you know the, it makes it even harder if you say well this piece of information is the thing that then led to the behavior you think, well really h- how have you demonstrated that right so and also well what you know what what quality of misinformation is the most kind of damaging information because you can't just lump everything as kind of equally bad mm-hmm. right because yeah there's got almost a kind of universal kind of it's all bad you think well if i believed that that if i came across some information like i don't know you know let's say i don't know anything about michael jackson and i mm-hmm. find out you know this bit of information tells me he's still alive mm-hmm. Right, so you know that that's misinformation, given what everybody knows about you know his state of living or death. Mm-hmm. Um, 
well, I'm not going. What, what, what am I going to do with that? Like, okay. <laughs> it's like that. You know, that might lead to some particularly harmful behaviour. Well, un, very unlikely. Yeah. Right. So then, then not all misinformation is equal. In which case, mm-hmm. then you have to be careful what you're focusing on and and demonstrate that that is the thing that's causing these bad behaviours, mm-hmm. whatever those behaviours are. So. Yeah, it- it's complicated. And also, you know, who's who's the arbiter of, of truth? And I'm not saying this to try to sound like some postmodernist or something. I'm, I'm very far from it. But what is considered true, or even in a scientific context, like <laughs> you just look at look over the past century, even look over the past two years, something that is considered correct, this is considered right, this is considered fact at in February 2021. And then by August, it's Oh, okay. That is not what, that's not correct. So the, the whole, like, I understand people's concerns around the concept of what people call misinformation, but misinformation, number one, we all have, again, human beings, we all have incorrect beliefs. We might know, we might not know what they are. In most cases, we don't know what they all are because we wouldn't intentionally be walking around with incorrect beliefs if we had access to the absolute objective truth on everything, right? So all almost 8 billion of us have some beliefs that are not correct. And we may even be like, sure, okay, I'm I'm sure that thing is correct. And it could turn out, oh, no, actually, that was not, that was not correct, or you didn't have the whole story or whatever it is. And then also from a scientific perspective, I mean, science can't work without misinformation being present and allowed to some degree because if you're going to ask questions or you're going to put forward a hypothesis or you're going to test something or you're going to challenge something some 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 things are going to be wrong so if there's something that's believed to be true and ends up being wrong you could then argue that it was misinformation do you see but it's like well yeah. if you're not allowed yeah. to yeah if if it's just there's a consensus and you can never challenge the consensus or the inverted commas truth at the time then there's never any progress or movement or discussion it's just okay this is just what it is it's ossified it's rigid these are the these are the facts and no one can can question it or challenge it or whatever and i think um yeah it, it it's an interesting it's an interesting thing but i think something that ties together a lot of what we've talked about is this push to almost how would i put it Almost like this this desire to perfect humanity more than it can be, right? You're like trying to control people's complete thoughts and complete behaviors and make sure that there's no inf- misinformation, everything is always correct and this and that. And it's like, I understand the urge and desire to some degree, but I'm also like, you can't you can't do that. And then also there's a line in terms of ethics as well. You know, where's the ethical line in terms of what we were talking about at the beginning with the nudge, right? Like how, where's the line between what is ethically okay and what is becoming just outright manipulative or propagandistic or whatever it is. I think these things are, are gray. It's not a simple, it's not a simple black and white and it, you could even argue it depends on the behavior, but I don't know who the arbiter of all these things is, which is why on many things I just kind of take a very pro-liberty position. And I'm just like, look, let people have it out. Good ideas float to the top. Let people speak. Let people challenge. Let people debate, discuss, and 
there's a lot that we don't know, but the more that we're allowed to talk and have these discussions, the closer we can inch towards what makes sense and what is truthful. The, I mean, while I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to represent science here, which is that, yeah, an, an opinion is an equivalent to, you know, some scientific evidence, right? Assuming it's gone through the mill where, mm. you know, the, what the, the institution of science is trying to develop some methods that in order to measure, you know, some things in the world and try to accurately capture them and describe them, which then allows you to do loads of predictions and a whole load of other stuff. So, you know, you, you have to go through that process to be able to, to say, here's a claim that has been validated through the, the agreed kind of basic consensus of the methods that we think uh, you know, lead to this claim being supported. Or even better if it, there's theory behind it. So that's not equivalent to. So yeah, that's why I'd be careful in sort of saying, well, you know, let all of the good ideas, you know, filter up to the top. It, well, assuming that the, yeah, you know, well, who's who's coming up with the idea? If it's just an idea, then that's not equivalent to a claim that's based on some kind of scientific evidence that is used that you know is generated through a scientific process right so that so that you know again one has to be careful there that Mm. that, but you know to bring this back to i think some kind of mutual agreement is that yeah there needs to be some kind of epistemic humility here right so you know a claim that's being made carries some degree of uncertainty so then the, the problems around misinformation are that you make a value judgment that if you don't believe the thing that is being out there, put out there, that any scepticism you have is wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you think, well, no. I mean, yeah, you know, there, there has to be some degree of doubt and mm-hmm. and you're allowed to have some degree of scepticism, right? So, yeah, you may, and there may be good reasons for for having scepticism around things. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean to say the scepticism has to override the thing automatically. But raising doubt shouldn't in and of itself constitute misinformation, right? Or yeah, the, anything that kind of yeah. you know suggests that. But I think we're in a state of the world where that seems to be happening. Well, absolutely. I think that um, we are living in an age of scientism <laughs> where what people call the science. I mean, I've never seen the word science abused as much <laughs> as much as I have in the past, in the past couple of, of years, right? It's now referred to as if it is just a, you know, a person or an institution or, you know, it's got very religious tones. And I say yeah. this as someone who is a Christian myself. Um, but for me, there's a, you know, there's overlap, but there's a delineation between religion and science and the way that they are meshing together and crossing over. I mean, we're we're living in this age where you're not supposed to ask questions or challenge anything or have any skepticism or even criticize certain individuals or what they're saying. And if you do, people will call you anti-science as if you're some type of heretic or, uh, you know, disbeliever or, or whatever it is, you know, it's all been trust the experts and follow the science 
and when I think it should be, you know, question the science and challenge the experts, right? Like let's let let's discuss things. If you cannot ask questions and you can't challenge things, then you're not in the realm of you're certainly not in the realm of science. Um, well, I'd, yeah. But we'll, we'll let we'll let's separate out this, uh, you know, uh, uh, what I think might be a useful distinction, which is that, um, yeah, the, the the methods of science, you know, the the, the you know all of mm-hmm. the tools that there are, and then there are scientists. Yes, <laughs> and, exactly. Humans. And you know, I think that's where that you know some of the problems, and you know, it's not just the scientists themselves, but you know, the, there's you know, many other institutions that provoke this to happen, which mm-hmm. is that you bring out a scientist who is going to start, you know claiming beyond what they're feasibly able to say anything about so you think well then what's happening there is um yeah you're campaigning or you're preaching yes so so you think well then then you're just as liable as anybody else to be scrutinized right Mm -hmm. so yeah you are overstepping (laughs) where you should legitimately be able to be talking right so Mm -hmm. you that's not your role you know, the role yeah. is to try to talk around what you understand based on your expertise, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, people will smell this. Like, they, you know, why are you going on about all of this? Like, you, you know, you're entering into the territory of astrophysics and you've got mm-hmm. nothing to do and so on, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, right. We don't need to play out the exact. I think put, people will be well aware what I mean. I think yeah, that, yeah. And that's a frustration because then it's doing a disservice to the method itself, right? So mm-hmm. the method is still problematic, right? So you're right, yeah, you know, there's constant evolution in how to improve the methods and the statistics and so on. So, yeah, yes, but, you know, that said, that doesn't mean to say we can't bank on anything that's coming out of... Oh, sure, the, yeah. It's just that then the, you know, you have celebrity scientists yes. and that is causing a huge problem which is backfiring mm-hmm. and you've got perverse incentives once you throw money and social status and uh, political motives into the mix then you're you're not now dealing with the hard objective clear science world you're dealing with the amalgamation of all these different things coming together science and politics and personal motivation and financial incentives and all of these things can can make the whole situation very blurry um magda it's been amazing talking to you um for people who are curious and want to find out more about you and your your work where's the best place for them to go Oh, you can just type my name, Magda Osman. There's loads of uh, websites that come up. I'm not on Twitter or anything like that. So, yeah, smart I don't. woman, smart woman. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm happier for it. But, yeah, type my name. Yeah, my homepage and stuff will come up and you can look at the stuff that I've done. Okay. Well, as, as Twitter, Twitter is the greatest psychological experiment out there. So, indeed. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Magda, <laughs> thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been amazing talking to you. Thank you, Zuby. Have a great day. I am the man, sick with the slang, sick and I'm destined for fame. Two for the fam, not for the grand, stuntly and destined for pain. I do not front, I do not scam, put some respect on my name. Sick like a rain, click and I bang, y'all gonna remember the name. Y'all gonna remember the name. 
sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.